Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus." Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Grass withers and flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Well, before we get started, we need to make sure we're ready to study God's word. Scripture says that if we are out of fellowship, not only are our prayers hindered, but it hinders our spiritual growth and our understanding of the word. And when we look at the passages we're covering tonight, we certainly need to have every advantage, including and especially uh, the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us in our thinking. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the Word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. thankful we had this opportunity to come together to study your word this evening, to be refreshed by the fact that you have spoken to us in a direct manner. You have given us clear uh, insight into the scope of history, the direction of history, and that you are in control even when things around us seem out of control. And when we live in a world where we watch some of the uh, maneuverings of Governments around the world, including our own, the uh, excessive uh, increase of indebtedness and spending and all of the uh, wars that are going on, the threats of terrorism. Father, there's so much that we could be fearful of if we get our eyes on the details of life, but because our eyes are upon you, we can relax and we can have a ministry to a world that is without hope and offer them the only real and genuine hope. So, Father, we pray that as we study your word, that we would be comforted, strengthened, and encouraged tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Open your Bibles there with me. And we are going to be introduced in this chapter to two more of the key players in the tribulation period. As I stated when we started into this section of of Revelation, starting in chapter 10, that we're looking at this, the contents of this little book prophecy that uh, is given to John in the 10th chapter by the powerful angel there. The first uh, characters that we were introduced to were the two witnesses in chapter 11. These are two prophets. Whether they are an actual resurrection of Old Testament prophets such as Moses and Elijah or whether they are two new 
prophets that come in the same spirit as Elijah and Moses? We can't say. Some people think that it's a literal resurrection. Others think that it is those who are coming in the spirit and power of Moses and Elijah. But they have a tremendous ministry in the first half of the tribulation period to Israel. And it is only when they are martyred and then resurrected and ascend to heaven that there is a response. And that is because God judges Jerusalem with this massive earthquake 7,000 are killed, and the rest give glory to the God of heaven. And I believe, as we've seen, that that is when a vast number of Jews in the land trust in Jesus as their Messiah. And it is not long after that that this event that is referred to as the abomination of desolation takes place when the Antichrist will set up his image in the uh, temple in Jerusalem to be worshipped, and he will seek to be worshipped as God. So we saw the introduction of the two witnesses in chapter 11. In chapter 12, the focus is on uh, the woman who is Israel and her flight into the wilderness where she is protected by God uh, during the second half of the tribulation period. And then we were also introduced to the dragon who is identified clearly As Satan, verse 9 says, so the great dragon was cast out. This is when he is finally booted out of heaven. A lot of people think he got booted out of heaven a long time ago, but he didn't. He has had access to heaven all along. Job 1, Job 2 talk about the fact that when all of the sons of God would gather together an assembly in heaven, this would include both fallen angels and elect angels, that uh, Satan was among them, and the, Satan and the, and the demons, the fallen angels, are not kicked out of heaven until the halfway point of the tribulation, as described in chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. So the great dragons cast out that serpent of old called the devil, and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So I take this to mean that During the second half of the tribulation, there will be a visible presence of Satan and the demons on the earth. It might not be. It's not absolutely clear. I'm certainly not going to uh, fight or die for it. But it seems to me that there is a more uh, visible uh, manifestation of angels and demons during the, and I'm not talking about the movie, Anybody here in the last week of middle week of March? There's a movie. I mean May. The movie's coming out this week. Angels and demons. Nobody reads the paper. Y'all are just. Oh, y'all are Star Trek. Yeah. So we have angels and demons. I think will both be visible during the, the end of the tribulation period because God is bringing all of these various themes and threads together for the final uh, final judgment. Now, before we get into the 13th chapter, just as a backdrop, I want to go over the titles of Satan that we find in Scripture. The titles that we have in Scripture, I have ten titles. There may be more. Sometimes when I look at some of the lists of so-called titles for Satan, I look at the verses and say, well, that really describes what he did. That's not really used as a title in that verse. So I've tried to 
focus on verses that give him alternate titles. And these titles say something about his character on the one hand, and they say something about his his goals, his objectives, his methodologies on the other hand. So the first title, of course, the one that is used most often is the term Satan, which is a Hebrew word, which means adversary. It's used 27 times in the Old Testament. It's used almost 30 times in the New Testament for a total of somewhere around 55 or 56 times in the Bible. So this is the most uh, common word that is used. And just there are many verses that you could go to to cite this, of course. And Job 1.6 is one of them. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the sons of God, it was a term that is not talking about humans in the Old Testament. It's talking about angels in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, sons of God are those who believe in him. But in the Old Testament, the phrase B'nai Ha-Elohim always refers to a to angelic beings, and it includes both fallen angels as well as elect angels. Now, there are a couple of times also in the Old Testament that you have a phrase, B'nai HaYahweh, Yahweh being the personal name for God, usually associated with God's relationship to Israel. And the sons of Yahweh are the Jews, because they are his people. But B'nai HaElohim refers to the sons of God and refers to the angels because they are directly created by God and they are individually created by God. So you don't have an angel species. Each angel is created distinct and separate from all of the other angels. So there's no uh, unifying angelic DNA, unlike the human race where we're all unified in Adam. And that means that every human being is related to every other human being, which means that one human being can die for everybody else in the human race. That's why you don't have, can't have that kind of salvation for, uh, for the angels, for the fallen angels, is because each individual angel is created separately and distinctly, and you can't have uh, an, a creature that is related in terms of species, to the other, uh, to the other angels. So they're therefore called the sons of God, and they would periodically gather in the presence of God for various things. We see some unusual discussions going on in Job one, Job two, in Second uh, uh, King, First uh, Kings twenty one. When they come together and God uh, seems to sort of enjoy tweaking Satan in some way, trying to get him to uh, do or carry out certain sorts of actions. So this is his role, though, adversary. Interesting, because I know that at least uh, three or four people in the congregation went to San Antonio this last weekend to a uh, Bible study methods uh, seminar that Arnold Fruchtenbaum with Ariel Ministries was conducting. Ariel is a, Ministries is a missionary organization for uh, taking the gospel to Jews. And if you are discussing the devil with Jews, they don't see Satan as the devil. They see Satan as a, an angel who has a 
designated role as being an accuser. But Satan is not the devil the way we look at the devil. And they don't identify passages like Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 with the devil. They interpret those in other ways. So it's important to kind of understand some of these different nuances that come along. And, and, And remember, modern Judaism is not what the Jews believed in the Old Testament. Modern Judaism was really put together after the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Uh, by in the uh, early uh, 90s, there was a council at Yamnia. There were some other meetings by uh, what was left over from the Pharisees uh, in places like um, uh, Zippori and other places in Israel during that first 30 or 40 years after the fall of Jerusalem where they basically restructured Judaism so that uh, they could go into the future in the diaspora without a, a, a temple and without a central sanctuary. And so what you, when you're talking with somebody who is, uh, who is Jewish, number one, they probably don't know their Bible very well. They never read their Bible. They usually, if they read anything, they read the rabbis. It's not unlike uh, Roman Catholicism in that way. I remember years ago when I was working on my uh, master's degree at the University of St. Thomas here, I was sitting in class one day, and there was a nun sitting next to me that was in, in, uh, uh, in the class. And I made some comment about the Bible, and she said, well, you know, we're Catholics. We don't read the Bible. And that's true. And the same thing happens with, with Jews. They don't read the Bible. They read the rabbis. And they, they just have a, a sort of a secondary uh, feel for uh, the Bible. They see it through somebody else's eyes. And sadly, that's happening in Christianity today. That's been going on for at least the last 40 or 50 years. You see more and more people talk about what so-and-so says the Bible means. They listen to John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, or Tony Evans, or... Uh, Joel Osteen or whoever their favorite person is of the hour, and they say, well, so-and-so says this and -and so-and-so says that, but they don't read the Bible for themselves. They don't spend time reading and and studying the Scripture on their own and and, uh, uh, for their own benefit. And this is something that should characterize Christians. We should be reading the Bible on a regular basis. We need to know what the Bible says and that was certainly characterized uh, believers in the early church. Whenever they got a hold of any part of Scripture, they just read it and read it and read it because it was so hard to come by that, that Scripture. But now that it's easy to come by the Scripture, we tend to ignore it. So Satan is called the adversary. And this is an, shows his role in, as an antagonist to God from his original fall where he was seeking to set himself up as God. And so he's accusing God, accuses his character. This is what we see again and again uh, throughout his, his career. The second term that is used is the term the devil, diabolos, the slanderer. He lies. He is going to be, he's the father of lies, uh, Jesus says in um, uh, the Gospel of John, you of your father, the, the, uh, the devil, uh, who is a liar from the beginning. Matthew 4.1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted 
by the devil. He is the slandering one. He slanders the character of God. He slanders believers. He lies about them and misrepresents them and misrepresents God's God's character for his own ends. Now, the next three are the ones that are really important for a background for understanding uh, the chapter that we're getting into and this whole dynamic behind the end times empire of the Antichrist or the first beast. And that, so the third title is that he's called the prince and the power of the air. This term comes out of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, talking about unbelievers who are born dead in their trespasses and sins. That's verse 1. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2, 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. Now, here we have the term cosmos. Now, that's important to understand because cosmos isn't just a term for the earth, as it were, or all of those who dwell upon the earth. It's used that way, of course, as in John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way, and talking about the inhabited uh, earth. But here it's talking about the thinking of the world, the thought systems of the world, and there are as many different thought systems on the earth as there are people groups and language groups, and probably more because there are many language groups such as English where you have many different different worldviews, and it's very interesting. I'd love to be able to have the time to study this, but it's very interesting to see the connection between a language and a worldview. And I know some of you are have spent time studying extensively other languages, but when you think... And if you're bilingual or trilingual or bicultural and you think within another language, you, you, when you shift from one language to another, there's a shift in the way you think about things and the way you express things. And just think about how someone who would, be, let's say, if someone were Chinese and uh, German, and if they were bicultural and bilingual, they would have two very different ways of thinking that's expressed through those language groups. And so there's, a, there's an interesting connection between language and the thoughts that are expressed uh, through those languages. And so how somebody says something in one language always needs to be massaged a little bit when you bring it over into another language. There's not a, always a one-to-one correspondence. And that's why many times when I'm talking about a Greek word or a Hebrew word, I'll talk about a range of meanings because uh, it's not always exact. You can't pick one Greek word and it always means this word in English and therefore you can just always substitute it that way. There's always a, a range of meaning in any particular word. And so each person, each worldview uh, sort of, or each language group expresses a worldview, and the idea of the world is the uh, thinking of the people within the world, their their worldviews, their values. Their whenever you think about the world and a worldview and value system, it always expresses itself in terms of an ultimate reality. What is the ultimate reality? Is it personal or is it impersonal? 
If it's personal, does that person communicate or has that person communicated to man? What kind of person is it? If it's impersonal, uh, how do we know about that? Is it infinite? Is it uh, just what's the nature of the of its impersonal force, or what what is it, which is what you get in some Eastern religions? Uh, you have ultimate reality. Flowing out of your idea of ultimate reality is the idea of knowledge. How do you know about this ultimate reality? How do we come to know truth? So a view of knowledge always flows out of a view of ultimate reality. In fact, there's there's really sort of a top down and down back and, and from the bottom back up uh, view in the in in the relationship between these these different elements. You start with an ultimate view of reality, and then that affects how you view knowledge. And the acquisition of knowledge, the importance of knowledge, the value of knowledge, uh, what ultimate authority is in knowledge. And then you have uh, views on ethics, on right and wrong. And those views on what is right and wrong are related to knowledge and related to your view of ultimate, ultimate reality. And then you have views on aesthetics. And aesthetics has to do with your view of art music, uh, your views on beauty. You know, if you go down to a museum where you can see art from different cultures in the world, they express what they see in very different ways. And the way they express that visually is directly related to their values, their standards, their ethics. It's directly related to their ultimate view of reality. All these things are integrated. So when we are born, we from the time we're born till the time we uh, become a believer, we walk, that is, we live according to the standards in the world system around us. We are brought up and we are trained to think a certain way by those around us. And if you're bicultural, that is, if you grow up, for example, in a uh, <clears throat> Hispanic family, living in the United States and you go back and forth to Mexico where you grow up speaking Spanish, speaking English, you're comfortable within the culture of Mexico, you're comfortable within the culture and the United States, then you're bicultural and you really can see two different ways, two different ways of thinking, two different value systems there. Um, so we grow up thinking that way. As unbelievers, we're always... Our thinking is always shaped by this thinking around us, which we also call human viewpoint thinking. There are many different kinds of human viewpoint thinking, but they're all part of cosmic thinking because their starting point is always man something in, or something in creation. It's not God as being distinct from creation. And this is the same kind of thinking that Satan has. His starting point was himself that he is a creature who can be like God. And so he shifted his thinking, as it were, away from God as the ultimate reference point to himself. He wanted to be the ultimate reference point. And so when Paul says, in which you walked according to the course of this world, it's according to a standard. That word translated according to is a, a Greek word indicating according to certain standards. And according to the standards of the world, whether you were Persian or Egyptian or Roman or Greek, 
All of those would be just different manifestations of the world's thinking. And it's second, he says, it's according to the prince of the power of the air, because it is Satan who lies behind all of those different ways of thinking, all those different cosmic systems. They're just different facets of Satan's way of thinking, his basic arrogance and autonomy. So we were born into the cosmic system, and we are uh, basically brainwashed and um, in, in the cosmic system, and we think the way Satan thinks. Now, we don't like to think of it that way. We think that we're a little better than that. But that's because we neither understand Satan's thinking nor do we understand, are we honest about our own thinking. But it, it's both based on pure autonomy. And so then Paul goes on to say in the next phrase, an appositional phrase, that this is the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And the sons of disobedience is just a general term Paul has here for those who are unbelievers who are in rebellion against God. It is a term that is somewhat parallel to, but not exactly identical to, the term that we'll see and that we've seen in Revelation, the term earth dwellers. So we have the prince and the power of the air, and this emphasizes Satan as the one who energizes the thought systems that define the cultures in the kingdoms of man. And we'll get into the kingdom of man again in just a minute. Fourth, he's called the God of this age. The God of this age. Second Corinthians 4, 4 says, whose minds the God of this age, talking about unbelievers, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now, the term age here translates a Greek word, ionos. Now, ionos is a word that overlaps the word cosmos. Now, the word cosmos, I explained earlier, has to do with the world and the thinking within the world. Cosmos emphasizes its organization and its orderliness. It is These are systems of thinking. We use the word cosmos to refer to cosmetics because you put on your cosmetics, a lady's putting her face in order. And that's the root concept in the Greek word of cosmos is order and organization. Ionos emphasizes the same thing but from a different vantage point. It's looking at that, that system as a system that dominates during a certain time period. This is the word that's translated world in Romans 12.2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word there for world isn't cosmos. It's not emphasizing the orderliness of the system. It's emphasizing the spirit of the age. The Germans called it the zeitgeist. What is the spirit of the age, the thinking that dominates any culture at any particular time. And we live in an age when the zeitgeist of our era is postmodernism. And once you, postmodernism may be a term that's unfamiliar to you, postmodernism is a term that comes along 
historically to explain what happens when modernism falls apart. Modernism was characterized the era of the scientific age when man thought that he could actually answer all man's questions and solve his problems through science and through knowledge. And once we had World War One and World War Two, the suffering that occurs with the working masses in the late 19th century, then the, the thinkers, the philosophers of the age began to realize that science was not going to solve man's problems. And so there was no real hope. There was no real certainty of knowledge. And so rather than finding some unifying truth, now we, everybody just has their own truth. And so we move into a period of, of, uh, where knowledge is all, all relative. Uh, you think your way, I think my way, somebody else thinks their way. Who's to say that one person's way of thinking is any better than another person's way of thinking? And you'll hear this in interviews. I, just in the last couple of days, I've heard two or three people interviewed, and you'll hear uh, phrases like, well, that's her truth, or that's my truth, or that's their truth. And it's like, well, wait a minute. I didn't know somebody cornered the market on truth. Uh, but that's the idea. There are these different, it's whatever you want it to be. And so what's the criteria? Well, it doesn't have to have a criteria. So everything becomes relative and everything becomes equal. And so there's no real distinction between uh, a person from uh, Marxist Russia and a person from uh, a free-thinking, uh, liberty-loving American. No one can say one is bad or one is good. It's just whatever is fits your truth. And this is a real problem when you start trying to uh, go anywhere in terms of establishing a culture. Once you get into that kind of a, a moral relative of a epistemological or relativism of knowledge, and then it affects your relativism of values, and then everything goes, and you start reinventing the whole, all the terms, uh, ethics. Everything gets gets uh, renamed and re-identified, and now we have. Um, Homosexual civil unions. Well, marriage is a civil union recognized by the state. I mean, most of you may not have thought about this, but when you got married, what the preacher said had nothing to do with your being married in the eyes of the federal government. What identified you as being married was when the, the pastor signed the uh, marriage license. I have one right here. When the pastor signs a marriage license and mails it in and it gets filed at the courthouse, that's when you're married. It is a civil union. Now they want to come along and say, see, we don't, we don't believe in homosexual marriage, but we think they ought to have civil unions. It's just a shell game. It means the same thing. A civil union by any other name is a marriage. And once you start letting the camel's nose get under the tent on that, everything starts falling down, which is what we're seeing. I mean, almost every state except one in New England now recognizes homosexual marriage. And probably before this presidential term is over with, we're going to see a major Supreme Court challenge on this because the implications on uh, homosexual marriage affect not just whether two people of the same sex can get married, 
But the arguments that are used against historically recognized marriage, biblically recognized marriages between one man and one woman, are are, are the same arguments that are used in, uh, in, in marriage where you have uh, you know, under what we call underage, where you have an adult man and a boy, or whether you have uh, polygamy with multiple wives or uh, multiple husbands, polyandrous. What, what are we going to do with all of this? I mean, once you start breaking down your definition of marriage as no longer being one man and one woman, then you can make marriage anything you want it to be. And the entire institution just fall, starts to fall apart. And so this is what happens when um, you get involved in thinking in pure relativism and being blinded by the thinking of the world around us. So in this sense, it's the same worldliness, but with Ionos, it's talking about that which characterizes your time frame. And you can see how Many of you have been around long enough to where we can see how the worldview, the zeitgeist of the 1960s is different, at least among those who were you know, 30 and older, was different than it is now. But that of the baby boomers that were coming along, the radicals of the 60s, is now the zeitgeist for the culture as a whole. So this is from the God of this age. He is the ruler, the God who... Uh, is dictating the thought systems of the age. Then we have the fifth title, the ruler of this world. John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world, Jesus said. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He is speaking proleptically of the, imp- of the results of the cross. He's looking at what the future consequences will be of, the, of his death on the cross, that that will be the ultimate defeat of Satan, he is the ruler of this world, the ruler of the cosmic system. Now, those three titles that I just looked at—the uh, Prince of the Power of the Air, the God of this Age, and the Ruler of this World—tell us that Satan is behind all of the world's systems of thinking, the great thought systems, the pre-Socratics, the uh, thinking of Plato, thinking of Aristotle, the thinking of the Neoplatonists, the uh, thinking of the Epicureans, the uh, thinking of the Enlightenment period. The thinking behind all of this comes and is energized ultimately by Satan. Because there's only two ways of thinking. There's God's way and there's the way that's opposed to God, even though there are many different facets or manifestations of the way that's opposed to God. So the human, what we call human viewpoint thinking is identical to satanic thinking and it's identical to uh, cosmic thinking. They're all the same thing. So when we're not thinking like God would have us to think according to the scriptures, we are thinking just like Satan would have us to think. And he is working furiously behind the scenes to achieve his end results in terms of controlling human history and bringing about the establishment of his king, kingdom and the defeat of God's plan. This takes us back to his uh, fall, Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14 There he is referred to as Lucifer 
in the uh, King James Version. King James Version took that term, which has at its core, as its root in Latin, the word lux for light, and uh, so made it a name. Lucifer, actually in the Hebrew, it's the uh, name is Hillel ben Shahar. The shining one, Hillel, is a term that was often applied to the uh, rising morning sun. Hillel ben Shahar is the son of the dawn. So this was a term referring to that first, um, that last star that you see early in the morning, uh, usually the planet Venus, the shining one, the sun of the dawn, in Isaiah 14.12. Then the seventh title is the one we've seen in our recent study of Revelation 12.9, the great red dragon. And in Revelation 12.9 connects all these titles so that we can't miss the identification that the great dragon who is going to empower the Antichrist and the end time kingdom is the same person that was in the garden with Eve and is also called the devil and Satan and that what he does is to deceive the whole world. And then eight, he is called the wicked one. In Matthew thirteen nineteen, this is when Jesus is giving the parable of the soils. And he says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in, the, in his heart. So the wicked one describes his character. He is evil to the core. Now, does that mean he always appears evil? No. In Second Corinthians 11, he appears as an um, angel of light, the scripture says. That even Satan and his ministers appear as an angel of light. They are deceptive, and that is why he is so wicked. Uh, he's called the tempter in 1 Thessalonians 3.5 and in Matthew 4.3. Now when the tempter came to him, that is to Jesus, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. So his role is to tempt, to entice people to disobey God and to live independently of God, to solve their problems independently of God. And then the tenth title is he is the accuser, Revelation 12.10. Then I heard a loud voice saying, In heaven now salvation, strength in the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren. This is what he does. He accuses believers. He accuses them before our God day and night has been cast down. Now, Satan, as the god of this age, as the prince and the power of the air, is the one who is behind the rise of this kingdom that comes into power at the end times. It is a one world kingdom, and we can already see the pressure and the movement in our time toward this kind of global unification. Now, I'm not saying that this means that the rapture is around the corner. It may be around the corner. It may not be for 25 or 50 or 100 years. We have no way of knowing the the rapture is imminent. That means there's no nothing that has to occur in prophecy before the rapture occurs. But Satan is constantly pushing in order to be ready so that when the rapture occurs, because he doesn't know 
when it will occur any more than you do. So he always has to have some person and some strategy in order to pull together some sort of kingdom. That's why if you think back over uh, the centuries that there have been different empires that have risen up in, in the church age. You had the Roman Empire initially. Later you had the rise of a couple of di- different Muslim empires. You had the rise of the Holy Roman Empire all the way up to the rise of the Third Reich in the uh, 20th century. You had the rise of the British Empire. You had the rise of American power. All of these were power bases and empires because of their uh, global reach that Satan could use uh, if the rapture occurred as a vehicle for promoting his man, whoever that might, whoever that might be. And now when we come to Revelation 13, we will be introduced to him in the first part of Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10. The focus is on the first beast. And in Revelation 13, 11 through 18, the focus is on the second beast. The first beast we usually call the Antichrist. The second beast we usually call the false prophet. So we come to the first verse here, Revelation 13, 1, and I. John is writing. Now, if you have a New American Standard in front of you, what you read is, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. If you use a uh, New King James or a King James Version, the text says, then I stood on the sand of the seashore. If you're using an ESV, which is a relatively new translation, it says, then he stood on the sand of the, of the sea. And the reason there is a difference here is because there is a discrepancy among some of the uh, manuscripts that we have uh, related to uh, this particular verse. And the difference has to do with just one letter of the text. The word here that is used for, uh, for standing is a word that is spelled estathane with a th. E-N on the end of it. And that new, that N on the end of it, means that in Greek that's a first person singular, and so that should be translated, and I stood. And that's found in the majority text, and the majority of manuscripts, as well as in the Textus Receptus, which is the tradition behind the King James translation. Majority text and Textus Receptus are not uh, absolutely identical. There's about 18 or 1900 dif- differences between them. Uh, in s- many texts and three or four of the oldest texts that we have, the word is spelled estathe. It just drops that last in. And the difference is whether it's saying I stood or he stood. Now, if it's he, it would be a reference to the dragon. That's why the New American Standard translates it and the dragon stood. If it is, if the majority text is correct, then it should be translated, I stood. In evaluating the data, it seems to me that it makes uh, sense from an internal argument that it is more likely that a scribe dropped a letter than added a, let, a letter. And if you drop a letter, 
that would mean that the end should be on the end, and it also makes sense from within a uh, the way John writes. If you go back to uh, verse 10 in chapter 12, he says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven. Uh, other places you can go back and see how John introduces the next scene by his own uh, movement. And so if the, there, there's no real reason for the dragon to be standing on the sand of the seashore, but there is a necessity for saying that John has now moved his position of viewing to the sand on the seashore. And so it makes uh, much more sense that the original reading would be, then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. And this beast had uh, ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Now there's another little discrepancy, not quite so significant. Uh, if you have a uh, King James or New King James, you'll see that it's heads first and horns second. But again, this is one of those places where the majority text uh, agrees with the uh, critical text, and so it seems the superior reading would put horns first and heads second. The emphasis seems to be on the uh, horns now as the kingdom of the Antichrist. So he sees a beast that comes up, sees the beast that comes up out of the sea having ten horns and seven heads. Now the word that is uh, translated uh, translated uh, beast here is the Greek word therion, and it refers to a wild beast or a wild animal. This is not a tame animal. This is not a domesticated animal. It is picturing this as in its most uh, bestial, ravenous, destructive form. And it states that this wild beast comes up out of the sea. Now, what you will typically hear or read as you get into uh, studying this is that the sea represents uh, the Gentile nations. The sea represents the Gentile nations. And this has its support in two passages. The parallel passage to uh, what we're studying is in Daniel chapter 7. In fact, we need to do a little more study in the seventh chapter of Daniel in order to appreciate some of the things that are going on here in the first uh, three or four verses. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has the second, uh, or inter- second, this is his vision. Earlier there was the uh, vision of Nebuchadnezzar, so this is the second great vision recorded in Daniel. And Daniel spoke saying that I saw in my vision by night and behold the four winds of heaven. Notice the winds are coming from heaven and they're acting upon the great sea. Now the winds, that word for winds is the Hebrew word ruach, which is the same word that is translated spirit for Holy Spirit moving upon the face of the deep back in Genesis 1-2. Ruach is also used to refer to evil spirits or demons. And so what we have here is, I think, a play on words that the spirits of heaven 
are stirring the great sea. And this is the picture that we have is that uh, the affairs of human history are influenced and acted upon by unseen forces in the angelic realm. And this is clearly substantiated in passages such as Ephesians 6, uh, 10 and following, as well as in Daniel chapter uh, 10, Daniel chapter 12. These passages talk about uh, the prince of Persia coming to answer Daniel's prayer, or excuse me, Michael coming to answer Daniel's prayer, but being uh, resisted by the prince of Persia for approximately 30 days, prince of Persia being a demon who is uh, influencing the affairs of the Persian Empire. So the picture here is of the, of the seas, and the seas indicate the uh, tumultuous, uncontrolled nature of the Gentile kingdoms. The tumultuous, uh, uncontrolled, unstable nature of the Gentile kingdoms, and that they are being acted upon by these unseen forces of heaven. So he starts off saying, The four winds of heaven are stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea. So these four beasts that come out of the sea are the same four beasts that are going to be uh, brought up in verse 2 of Revelation 13. The beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Well, Daniel chapter 7, what Daniel sees is these four beasts, each different from the other, and he sees uh, a lion with the wings of an eagle that represents the ancient uh, Neo-Chaldonian Empire, or Neo-Babylonian or Chaldean Empire, and the uh, lopsided bear with the ribs in his mouth that represents the media Persian Empire, the leopard with the wings of an eagle and four heads. These represent This represents the uh, kingdom of Greece under Alexander the Great. And then the fourth beast is just a great and terrible beast that eventually in its final manifestation has these ten horns, which are... Uh, like the ten horns that we see here in verse uh, 1 of Revelation 13.1, the ten uh, kingdoms that will comprise the confederacy of the Antichrist kingdom in the end times. So the sea is that mass of Gentile powers and nations out of which these empires arise uh, down, through, uh, down through history. We see the same thing indicated in Revelation 17, 1 through 3, which gives us another picture of the Antichrist kingdom. This in the imagery of the great uh, harlot who sits on many waters. The many waters there relate to the sea. And so in 17, 1, uh, one of the seven angels who had the seven vials or bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I'll show you the judgment on the great harlot who sits on many waters on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. Those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away into the, uh, in the spirit into a wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a beast full of blasphemous names. You will see that same term, the blasphemous names, at the end of verse uh, 13.1. Uh, this beast that comes out of the sea has seven, has ten horns and seven heads, and on his horn horns, ten crowns, 
and on his heads a blasphemous name. So here she has, um, she's full of blasphemous names having seven heads and ten horns. So it connects the two images. And then in Revelation 17, 15, he, that is the interpreting angel, said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And so the scripture makes it clear that the um, that the sea represents the mass of the Gentile nations. And it's in contrast to that that the second beast is going to come up, and he is going to come up out of the earth, which in contrast to the seas would mean he comes out of Israel. So this would indicate that the Antichrist is going to have a Gentile origin. He will have a Gentile origin. He will not have a Jewish origin. There are some who think that the Antichrist will come out of Israel. But Israel is not going to accept this kind of a pseudo-Christ uh, as their leader. They, they, they will be influenced, though, by the false prophet, and we'll see that uh, when, we get, when we get to him. Now, as I said, the next thing that John says in Revelation 13.2 is a description of this particular beast. And this particular beast... The beast which I saw was like a leopard, indicating speed. His feet were like those of a bear, indicating power and the, the massive strength of a bear. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So he is empowered and by the dragon who is the devil. Now, this takes us back to the seventh chapter of Daniel. So turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. been a while since I've worked my way through Daniel 7, so we may take a week or so to go through Daniel 7. The more I study prophecy, the more significant I see this particular chapter. And there's a tremendous amount there, so we'll probably spend most of our time next time on Daniel 7 to get the background. There. <clears throat> now, what my plan is to basically go through the section on what Revelation says about the Antichrist in these ten verses, and then we need to compare that to other key passages related to the Antichrist. The other key passage is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and so we'll make uh, some comparisons there, and we'll also pick up some significant comparisons in Daniel 8 related to the little horn in Daniel 8, which is Antiochus Epiphanes. He was actually Antiochus IV called Epiphanes. He was one of the rulers of the Greek Empire when it broke up into four, four uh, parts or four regions after the death of Alexander, and he is the one who is the... Uh, he is the prototype or, or foreshadowing of the Antichrist because he will go into the temple in Jerusalem. He'll have a pig, an unclean animal, sacrificed in the temple, and he will set up an, an idol to himself to be worshipped in the temple. And this is prefigures the abomination of desolation. 
So Daniel chapter 7, let's just look at the first part of it. Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, what we see in Daniel is the beginning of the period that Luke refers to as the, as the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles refers to the power base on the earth in terms of empires. Up till 586, there is a Jewish kingdom from the uh, inauguration or the uh, anointing of Saul to 586, you had a Jewish kingdom, and from David down to the defeat of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, you had a descendant of David on the throne, uh, throne in Jerusalem. But because of their idolatry and because of their rejection of God, God is going to take them out of the land according to the fifth cycle of discipline in, uh, outlined in Leviticus chapter 26. By taking them out of the land, God is showing that there's a shift and he's going to start working more directly through these Gentile powers. Now, the times of the Gentile began in 586 because from that time until the present, Jerusalem has always been functioning under the heel of a Gentile power, even though there have been a couple of times in history when they have had a form of independence, for example, under uh, the Maccabees in the uh, 2nd century uh, B.C., it was never a full or complete freedom. Uh, They were still somewhat under the thumb of the Gentile powers, and they never felt secure enough to really establish themselves well as an independent uh, power. Now, throughout this time, from 586 B.C. up to the present, human history has always had the rise and the fall of these great empires. And it is under the aegis of these great empires that we have periods of peace and stability in human history. When you had Babylon and then Persia and later Greece and Rome, Uh, When you had these great powers, there were times, at at the height of their power, there were times of peace, there were times of prosperity, there was times of great and tremendous trade, and especially in Rome, when you had the famed Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, it gave the opportunity to spread the gospel, and the Apostle Paul and the other disciples were able to travel freely throughout an enormous geographical area, in the Roman Empire in order to take the gospel and spread the gospel throughout uh, North Africa, throughout the Middle East. Uh, Thomas took it to uh, India. Others took it into the area of Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, today Kurdistan, all of those areas. And then many others took it north into Russia and north, northwest into, into Europe. And this occurred because of that stability that came under Rome. Now, does that mean that Rome was a great, was a great and wonderful empire? Uh, no, there were definite bestial, tyrannical, horrible aspects to the Roman Empire. But it was a time when, when there was uh, peace and stability. Since the fall of Rome, there have been many other uh, empires that have risen, 
many others that have tried to rise, and yet it's under their, uh, the times of stability there. You think of the Holy Roman Empire in the late Middle Ages. Later on, you have the expansion of Western Europe. We have the, and then in, on into the 19th century, you have the British Empire. We think of the tremendous spread of the gospel as the British soldiers would go to India and go to Africa and go to other areas where the sun never set on the Union Jack, there were always missionaries that went with them. And so that doesn't mean that we should somehow glorify these empires as being better than they were, because all empires, all the way up to the present uh, situation, some use the term American empire because we live in a world of peace that is guaranteed by the United States of America. And this has made it possible to take the gospel to places that uh, did not have the gospel. And there's been tremendous expansion of Christianity due to the peace and stability that we have now. And so this has been the way that God has chosen to work uh, down through history since uh, the times of the Gentiles, uh, since the times of the Gentiles began. But we must remember that all of these kingdoms are represented as bestial. Uh, Daniel 2, where you have this beautiful, glorious statue made of all of these precious metals, is um, a picture of how man views his kingdoms. But when you get to the seventh chapter of Daniel, we see the core character because man is fallen and we are all corrupt and we're all sinners that ultimately all power bases, all empires, all nations fall to the corrupting influence of sin. And so we dare not uh, romanticize or glorify uh, any nation or empire in history because ultimately they're all just different manifestations of the kingdom of man. So we'll come back next time. I'll start with some various characteristics of the kingdom of man, and then we'll begin to look at the prophecy that Daniel has in Daniel chapter 7. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of the fact that, that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle, a spiritual warfare, and ultimately our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against uh, principalities and powers and authorities in high places. It's against Satan and his desire to usurp your sovereignty. And yet you, through the Lord Jesus Christ, defeated him at the cross. And it is now through the outworking of your plan in the church age that you will bring an ultimate resolution to the problem of evil. But we gain great comfort because we know that despite the fact that there is great instability in the world around us, that you are always faithful and that there is no change in you, and so we can always rely upon you, for you are our shield and our buckler. You are the rock of our salvation. And, Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.